0: Hello, hello. We're back on the Fight Sites MMA podcast. And that hello, hello was completely intentional because we have a special guest, as you probably know from clicking on this podcast. Connor Rubish of Heavy Hands has joined us. Whoa, joined us whoa, 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 whoa.
1: Excuse me, sir. Don't mispronounce my last name like that. It's Rubish, okay? You don't know what it's like to have people mispronounce your last name. have to name. give that back. You don't know what it's <laughs> like, all right?
2: Do we need to start this over, sir? No,
1: I don't think so. I think that's good. <laughs> yeah, I think that's great. Given how I pronounced Furam's name when he was on my show, I think that's
0: it's fair hard enough. back. <laughs> uh, yeah, we're we're very happy to have Connor on our show because he is uh, he's had us both on their show before and it was delightful. So uh, with me as always, Danny Martin, who you heard laugh just a couple moments ago. How you doing, Danny?
2: I'm just living the dream. Uh, we got a we got a good discussion going today. We forego are foregoing our usual like weekly scheduling we'll probably pick it up next week but we are we picked up another guest because we just can't get enough of those and we have a really fun kind of broad broad stroke discussion um about mma as a sport today and who better to discuss this with than the the third best host of heavy hands connor (laughs) Clearly
1: only two other people better to discuss this with, but I'm happy to fill in. Uh, I'm (laughs) sorry, I shouldn't mention his name. He hates when I do that. Um, We had had uh, to go uh,
2: down the checklist. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm
1: very happy to be here. Thank you so much. I just wanted to be known that uh, I did bring my Kyle McLaughlin energy today, all right? So uh, unlike the nice, sweet, thoughtful performances you guys gave on my show, I'm just going to be a dick. I don't know, Kyle's
0: inimitable. Us. Well,
1: it's it's true. I I could try the accent, but they also hate when I do that. So
0: <laughs>
1: I'm very happy to be here, though, guys. Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you for coming on. Um, so we're gonna start out with what we I guess usually do, which is the review of last week's thing, which was surprisingly not depressing. Uh, I think we all expected it to be at least a little bit depressing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Robert Whitaker and Darren Till. Uh, so, Connor, if you want to start us off, what were your initial thoughts on uh, Robert Whittaker and how he performed?
1: Well, um, I came away from it with um, with mixed thoughts. Uh, I had a mixed reaction. Uh, on the one hand, I thought uh, Darren Till has officially gotten better, uh, which was cool. Uh, I thought he showed a few new wrinkles, particularly his counterpunching was not quite as void as I've seen it in the past. Um, it was a very useful asset for him. Uh, the flip side, of course, is you know, I, I say it was useful because uh, Robert Whitaker ran into way too many counters. I'm more willing than ever to believe the sort of doom and gloom stuff that you guys like to spread whenever a, a beloved fighter does poorly <laughs> <laughs> i'm it, it's a better argument than ever before uh, to say that Whitaker is slipping a bit, perhaps showing the the wear and tear of the Romero fights and everything else. On the other hand, I did come away with it, I think, with a clearer idea of. Uh, What exactly has um, made Whitaker struggle so much in his uh, his three notable UFC losses, the uh, the Wonderboy one, Adesanya. Um, And then this wasn't a loss, but it was a lot closer than I expected. You know, I I would have I came into this expecting Whitaker to kind of do a Masvidal style flurry and knock Darren Till out at some point. So basically, my feeling on Whitaker now is that uh, he just does not like that range. Uh, he doesn't like long-range fighters, fighters with a reach advantage. It seems to make him really uncomfortable. Um, I can't tell if that's entirely responsible for what seems to be some like technical regression, but it does seem to be a common thread between Wonderboy, Adesanya, and now this, which is, in my opinion, you know, the worst uh, version of the long, lanky counterpuncher that he has fought to date and he still didn't look like the best Robert Whitaker I've ever seen. I mean, there's no denying that the crazy blitzes, the wild swings. I think the fact that Till was a southpaw may may have added to that some more. Uh, the open stance and the long ra- longer range that it created. Um, so I, I'm not yet ready to say that Whitaker's done. I'm uh, certainly more uh, intrigued by the idea that he's he's past his best now. But uh, really, I came away from it thinking, man, he does not look at his best when he's fighting someone who's longer than him and who wants to counter him when he rushes in.
2: Yeah, I think I I think I cosign with all that. And I'm glad you pointed out the fact that we can now sort of deduce some of the problems that Whitaker has, because Whitaker's had such a strange run at Mm -hmm. middleweight. It's not to say that it hasn't been good. It's just, you know, he had you know, almost an hour of fight time with one person who's, Mm -hmm. you know, a pretty notorious person to have. And then it's sort of hard to look at the Adesanya fight and figure out what to take from it. Like we now, it does feel like we have just more of a sample size, even, even going back to like the Uriah Hall fight Mm -hmm. um, was a bit more, a bit scrappier than I think most people expected it to. Absolutely. Um, It's a great fight too. Yeah. It's a really good fight. And I like, again, I don't think it's, I don't think it's really a knock on Whitaker that he had to, figure some things out against Hall. Uh it was more just we can look at Hall, Adesanya, Thompson, and we can start seeing some kind of until now we can start seeing some trend lines. Mm-hmm. Um I think part of the reason part of the thing that exacerbates Whitaker's problems with like longer rangier opponents is that it can kind of cost him his own jab. Like Rob is a he's a really natural he has a natural sense of counterpunching. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I like, and you can see that like the first exchange was till try to kind of pressure he, in.
1: He relied on it a lot more here than he did. I mean, I think it may have been trickier to lean on the counter against Adesanya. who's just a much more deft kicker and long range striker. But, uh, I, I was glad to see him despite all of the crazy blitzes, you know, they, they were, I think a little better chosen than they were against Adesanya.
2: Yeah, I, I would I would completely co-sign that. Uh, but like I said, he's a, he's got a natural sense of of countering, like his his jab when he can kind of intercept people with it. And he inter- intercepted Adesanya with it a few times. It's very, mm-hmm. like, it, he just has a really good sense of staying safe. And, you know, I, I like seeing that. He is more uh, susceptible on the lead than I think we've given credit for in the past because mm-hmm. he doesn't, he gets compared to Galvin Gastelum a lot. And while I I fully admit that I think Whitaker is a a smarter, more dimensional fighter than Gastelum, Gastelum does kind of have one thing that Whitaker lacks, and that Gastelum can put himself in range with his feet over him planted more easily. Rob tends to, Mm -hmm. like, he can start his combinations from way outside. He did that against Adesanya, and he had a little bit of trouble here, where he starts way back, and then he has to he has to try to faint his way in and he has a large swath of distance to collapse, to get in range. And then he immediately has to angle out. Yeah. And so when you're fighting a more static opponent, like a Jacare or a, um, a Romero, like that becomes easier to do because the chances of them taking an angle on you as you come in, or, you know, trying to out position you is fairly low. They're, mm-hmm. If you enter on them, you know, Rob has a good sense of, like, where they are in proximity to him. He knows, like, how to bridge the gap. His jab is a much easier tool to do that with. But, you know, I think, I think your point about the southpaw was also wise in that Till could obstruct the lead hand, which is, again, Adesanya did that deftly. And they can, you know, he can adjust as Whitaker is entering from long, like, a long ways away. So that's like, that's something I think there was like definitely something to consider there. On the flip side, one of the biggest lessons I took from Darren Till is uh, if you take angles on Darren Till, he has a lot of issues. Like it's, it's just uh, yeah. really that simple. Like,
1: also, you, if you throw more than 10 strikes around,
2: Darren Till tends to have issues. Well, sure. Uh, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I would definitely agree on that. Um, But I was I was just kind of looking at the footwork side of things and I was like, wow, he really struggles when guys try to angle in on him. You know, he would like Rob would use a outside angle to take the outside leg kick and then just pivot off until had to turn every time like Mm -hmm. this is where a lack of a right hook hurts him this is mm-hmm. you know you have a guy taking an angle on you and then pivoting off to his left this is basically where Poirier made his hay against Max in their the early rounds of their fight mm-hmm. um so yes like I, I think that there was a lot of definitely a lot of improvement from Darren Till as far as the counter punching we can actually say as you said on Twitter he can he is something of a counter puncher now which mm-hmm. <laughs> he's actually earned that title mm-hmm. um but I I I was was not quite as down on Whitaker as I expected to be. Um, there was a lot of there was a lot of like veteran savvy and guile. And I sure, sure am, I know you were you were thinking about that, too. See, you you, you shielded yourself with, a, with a, a heavy hands, classic sadness hedge.
1: That's <laughs> I why did. you were you I were was more pleasantly did. surprised, whereas <laughs> I was like, I came into this thinking even the Whitaker who fought Sonya would obliterate till. So I was disappointed.
2: Still a little disappointed. It's all like you, too. I'm not a coward. Yeah, let's let's just throw him. What would you think?
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty much on the same page. I think the doom and gloom that we've generally had with fighters returning has actually been pleasantly subverted in a lot of the recent fights because, you know, Dustin Poirier off a bad title loss came back, looked pretty much prime against Dan Hooker. Jimmy Rivera came back after after a pretty rough two-fight skid. He looked sharp as hell against Cody Stamen. And Mm -hmm. Whitaker kind of kept that trend going. Uh, It was... I agree with the same things, the length. I think Whitaker likes being an in-and-out short combo sort of fighter. So, like, when that initial step takes him in, he can just start swinging and go with, like, one or two punches, which is what he did with Jacare and, like, weave out or angle out. But here he had to cover distance behind his strikes, and that meant that by the time he got to four, five, six, it was just his feet were all over the place. So Adesanya kind of did the same thing where, like, Adesanya would angle off and Whitaker had to, like, keep swinging, which was rough. But I think there's some value, and we're going to get to the value of adjustments later. But there's some value in how Whitaker figured out the fight with, you know, the outside leg kick. He got that for free every day. Uh, and the transitional work, which was something that we hadn't really seen from Whitaker before, but he seemed yep. to have a good idea of how to do it. He, uh, his bursty sort of approach, I think a lot of us suspected that it would do well for, like, reactive takedowns. He used those entries well. He would, like, uh, get in on a single and break with left hooks. He did that a lot. And at the end of the fight, he just used that to make up for the blood optics. So that was very smart. And, yeah, I mean, it was – as he mentioned, it was a veteran sort of fight from Whitaker, not necessarily prime, but also it wasn't an easy fight for him because of the length. I think he look probably better against, like, a Cannoneer or costa, but I'm mm-hmm. still worried because this is one more knockdown that he's taken in three fights that have been really, really nasty. So. Mm-hmm.
1: I think the fact that um, – I mean, I think the fact that Tilt – I mean, Tilt did a really good job fainting and pressuring, I thought. You know, he stayed on Whitaker. I would have liked to have seen Whitaker press forward more. I think that's a little more natural for him to just be in a to be leading the dance. But uh, I also think the the super low output of Till, uh, another facet of his game that people seem to just overlook all the time. Uh, I think that was difficult as well because Whitaker came into this looking, you know, wanting to do more counter punching. I said earlier that maybe Adesanya would have uh, had a field day with that more like back foot approach. But on the other hand, Adesanya would have given him a lot more reads and a lot more things to actually build a counter game off of. Um, So, yeah, I I think that uh, this version of Darren Till was, in fact, a much harder stylistic matchup than I anticipated. Uh, So that's why I'm I'm just not sure how to feel about. I mean, I need to see Whitaker against just make the Jacare rematch. You know, just let's see that again so I can I can get a barometer for, for where he's really at.
0: I think we're at a point where Darren Till is going to make our favorite fighters generally look kind of like trash because he's very big and he's like doesn't really do that much. So it's going to take a guy who's comfortable on the lead covering distance against someone who has like the reputation of a counterpuncher, even if he's more of one now, but still not much of one. So Mm -hmm. it's like if you look at if Darren Till happened to face like Adesanya, I'd expect that to be like a complete mismatch because of the kicking thing alone. But. It would not be an entertaining fight, in my opinion, because mm-hmm. you know Till just wouldn't really do all that much, and Adesanya would just take what he's given, and that's what most fighters do. So I think that it, fights against Till kind of have to be tempered in that way, I suspect. hmm
2: I guess this is kind of a a good transitional piece to the main topic of the podcast. But um, when after the the Whitaker Adesanya fight, I didn't actually feel like. I didn't look like Whitaker was it didn't look to me, it didn't look like Whitaker was so completely out of a, out of his depth that I'd never pick him to win. Like oh, no, actually, no. I actually I look yeah, it looked like a fight where I was like, okay, Whitaker clearly keyed in on the wrong things. I don't think he necessarily had a bad strategy coming in, but I don't think he adjusted well enough to really make it work. And he went in against an opponent who had clearly done like a ton of training and and tape study on Whitaker's exact tendencies that he just kind of couldn't help but play into but I said that like if there's there probably exists a different approach for Whitaker and with a different one I think he might still be able to win that fight I if, if there was one sort of one sad takeaway from this fight it's was probably that I don't know if I really believe that anymore and it's because I like I said it's that sample size thing. Now we have seen more rangy mm-hmm. opponents who are, you know, can time time Rob on entry or can just make him commit from way on the outside where there's just a large amount of time for the opponent to adjust and angle and you know like that and, and where Whitaker's, you know, his best work, as I said, it largely came off the counter. It's the leads that Kind of, of yeah. concern me. I was like, that is actually seems like a like a harder sell for me. Um, I, I I more or less feel the same
1: way. I mean, I I'll, I'll phrase it this way. I think it is eminently possible for uh, that Whitaker would make the right adjustments to win that fight next time. Uh, I think it's in fact likely that he could come into the rematch and do much better. But um. Whether or not Robert Whitaker himself is capable of making those adjustments, you know what I mean? Like, the the technical adjustments are available for Whitaker's style to work. But, um, yeah, having seen the larger sample size of this kind of matchup, I'm more doubtful of whether or not Whitaker... Can actually make those reads and stick to the right
2: adjustments. I don't know. It's clear he just doesn't he just doesn't like it. It's just yeah, clearly it, it, not the kind of fight that he's super comfortable in.
1: As he said himself, that was a super stressful fight.
2: You yeah,
1: know, that's that was his like his first words in the post fight interview was, "Oh my God, that was stressful." It was clear he just wasn't enjoying it the way he does. You know, I think he enjoyed fighting Derek Brunson a lot more than he enjoyed this, and that fight was insane.
2: Yeah. So like again, it was it was it was good to see Whitaker get a win. Um it was nice to see him, you know, beat beat Darren Till over five rounds. It's good to see that he's still able to like push a pace and, and things like that. Um but there I, I do feel like we have a a bigger sample size and a more kind of a more revealing sample size of exactly what type of fighter is likely to give Robert Whitaker issues. Um so there's there it was clearly packed with a lot of lessons there's a lot of meaning in that fight and so there's always something to discuss there but that is actually a good segue into the main topic of the podcast which is going to be as we said earlier adjustments um i will kind of piggyback off something connor said uh which is when you have a performance like whitaker's against adesanya where you know as i kind of alluded to before it wasn't it wasn't a bad approach necessarily but he clearly he just sort of keyed into the wrong things against an opponent who was clearly keying into the right things um when a first fight between fighters goes really catastrophically badly for one guy especially in like a title situation it is generally a good expectation that a second fight won't go quite that badly um, because when you have a fighter approach a fight just categorically wrong, the possibilities for improvement are gargantuan. Right. Like, that, which is it's kind of a rare, a, a strange sort of lesson to take from it. But if you really show up and things go just haywire, that does mean that there is often a lot of, there's a lot of possibility for things to be improved the second time around. Now... It makes it hard to pick. It's. I realize it's hard to pick a losing fighter to win uh, a second fight around. Like, you know, that was one of the reasons that I was hesitant to pick Holloway, even though I said in my, you know, staff pick, I was like, I think there's actually room for, you know, for Max to to give Volkanovski some serious issues if he's taking the right lessons. It's a hard thing to trust, but the possibilities are there. Um, and. So and I think when you can actually make those happen, the like a second fight being closer in those types of situations is it's generally a good it's generally not as weird as it might seem. Sir, does this does this sound normal? Am I talking out of my ass?
0: Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. The big exception we saw recently was uh, Figueredo and Benavidez. But Max and Volkanovsky makes a great point. And even that was probably just physical decline. But yeah, in general, I think if you look at, for example, like uh, we were talking about Whitaker, Whitaker and Romero. That's a great example where Whitaker seemed to kind of have Romero solved by the end of the first fight, at least in terms of the approach he had to take with, um, you know, just weaponizing his pace and kicking him in the body a lot. And then Romero came in the second fight and he's a uniquely smart fighter but he came in the second fight with a completely different strategy and gave Whitaker absolute hell so there are a lot of examples of trilogies like that Max and Volkanovsky is another one uh and yeah I mean I think there are specifically unadaptive fighters to whom that doesn't apply but in general fighters tend to think when they're off a loss more than they are when they're off a win
1: I think it's it's actually very common that uh, the loser just has they have things to work on I mean, you know you need to work on stuff when you lose, whereas even the winner of a very close fight. um, I think, you know, uh, there are two ways to talk about adjustments, right? You can talk about adjustments made on the fly. You could talk about adjustments made from one fight to the next. I think adjustments made on the fly are, they tend to be more sustainable because they just kind of come out of who the fighter naturally is. Um, Adjustments made between fights that, that are sort of like larger changing the the architecture of your style kind of adjustments um i think holloway volkanovsky is a great example of how those can be a bit shallower because uh i think we all agree max holloway made beautiful adjustments to the rematch with volkanovsky like he came in and started doing all all the right things right i was blown away uh and immediately my reaction was this guy said he didn't have a training camp and he's a liar because I don't believe it. it that, that was way too. His performance was too prescient. It was on point. Um, but despite his early success, and this is Max Holloway. This is a guy who builds. You know, this is that's his whole thing. Despite that early success, he kind of reverted to classic Max Holloway by the final three rounds. Uh, the, the the really active kicking game was not really there anymore. Uh, like the disengaging footwork wasn't there anymore. He was just chasing Volkanovsky with more combinations. So uh, that interests me as well. I think there's more room for the loser to grow, but um, uh, I think the style dynamic is always still sort of there under the surface. Um, and unless the, the adjusting fighter, the, the one who lost in the first fight, like wins early, I do think you tend to see that as the fight plays out.
2: Yeah. And that kind of brings uh, that kind of, you know, filters into the next point, which is like, how do you rebuild like a fighter's context? Um, Because I'm Mm. there's there's an example that I'm thinking of if you're looking at like sort of uh, fight to fight adjustments, there is one that comes to mind as a kind of a bad example um, or an example that just just did just failed was Lando Venata. Um, where I think, you know, Venata clearly heard some of the criticism of like he's getting hit too much. and He needs to work on his defense. And his response was, OK, I need to be like a safer. I, I need to do something different. I'm
1: technical. Joe Rogan's technical yeah. fighter.
2: Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. And uh, then I think it was what the hell was it? Matt Frivola. Um and it was I think it was actually Phil who keyed in on it. It was like it looked like Venata was like trying out trying to be a safer mm-hmm. fighter, and he just looked super weird. Yeah. <laughs> like it I didn't think, uh... nothing fit at all. It wasn't it nothing was inherent. It seemed like he had to think through all of his moves. I think another you know if you when you see a fighter trying to think their way through every single move, they just tend to get exhausted. I think uh, Mursad Bektic is another example of someone you can just visibly, visibly just gets anxious, um, either trying to follow corner advice or do what they've been taught. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just not a natural, like, you know, either they just, just don't exist in like a natural context or they've been, you know, whatever they've built for themselves has kind of been broken down. Tristar um, did,
1: a, did a number on that boy. Unfortunately, I think mm-hmm, another yeah. another fantastic example of someone making a style adjustment, uh, unsuccessfully at least so far. And again, these things—if when you do make a full, you know, revamp, it it can, it can work, but it at least takes a while, a few fights to really become natural. Uh, mm-hmm. But Alexander Hernandez, knocked yeah. out by Donald Cerrone, been a totally different, far more passive fighter since, and it's not been working better for him, you know.
2: Mm -hmm. um which is yeah so like it's sort of adjusting within you either have to adjust within the context of who you are and we'll probably talk about that a bit um or you have to like rebuild the context in which case you are opening up a lot of doors for things to go awry for a fighter like that like i said that's where fighters have to think through their approach that's where they have to like almost try to micromanage or coaches try to micromanage their fighters Or they start doing something that they're used to and their coaches try to reel it back or whatever their new adjustments (laughs) make. They just kind of fall out over time. It's like it requires a specific I think it requires a specific kind of fighter to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, I don't think those kinds of things are are available for everybody. Um, Serum?
0: I think Kevin Lee is a good example of the TriStar thing. Now that uh, Connor mentioned that, Mm -hmm. because if you look at like what he does, well. He's, like, a big pressure wrestler who's, like, super strong against the cage. And then he went to TriStar, which is, you know, make everyone into a backfoot jabber. And it worked against Gillespie, but Gillespie isn't, like, the best test. And then he went against Oliveira. And, like, Oliveira worked when he wrestled him, but he just kept backfoot jabbing, and it didn't work at all. Like, Kevin Lee, he's basically, like, a machine in that if you give him something, he'll just keep doing it. And that's something good if he's given the right plan that plays to his strengths, but that kind of didn't. So, like, it could work moving forward, but there it just didn't. And that's a good example of, you know, when a fighter is kind of taken away from what they do and they kind of have to think through everything that they do. So, like, you can look at a bunch of Kevin Lee fights where, like, if he fights the right fight, he'll keep going through it. And if he fights the wrong fight, he'll also keep going through it. So it's, uh, it's an interesting case.
1: I think um, uh, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to name an example uh, of someone who I think very successfully uh, changed styles that dramatically and, and why it worked. And that's Alistair Overeem. Who, uh, in the transition from uber ream to medium ream, became a largely back foot, um, sort of outfighting, occasionally counter punching, like, yeah, this this sort of like evasive, slow paced fighter. Uh, and that's nothing like the Alistair Oveream, like kickboxing rooted style that we all came to know. That's nothing like like 2009, you know, 2012, whatever, er, er, earlier period ream. Um, it's hard to come up with a good name for each phase of Ream's career, by the way, because he's been at it forever. But uh, you know what I'm talking about from the super aggressive guy who knocked out Badr massive shift. And I, I've always seen that uh, you guys have probably heard me say this in various different things. I've always seen that as um, like a victory of framing, like how that frame, how that change is framed Um, how that fighter feels about the change they're making, why they feel like they're doing it, I think is very important because uh, a lot of like the, the tactics um, a trainer will, will tack on to a fighter. They're, they're basically like papering over either papering over or like augmenting sort of the, all the insecurities and neuroses that make that fighter who they are. You know what I mean? So like um, if your guy's super impatient you, you, you're, you're better off developing tools that either work with that, like making him a pressure fighter, giving him a crazy active pumping jab, whatever, making him a combination puncher, really focusing on those things, or um, papering over the flawed aspects of that, right? And, and really those tools kind of do the same, like it, being impatient can be bad, but if you equip your guy with lots of tools that make his impatience a weapon, you've, you've sort of made it no longer a flaw, in the same sense, you've made it an asset um, for over him. I always thought he was just a bully. And uh, I always looked at the shift from aggressive pressure fighting bruiser to backfoot foot outfighter um, as just a different context of how it feels to bully someone. Uh, the example I always used was instead of uh, smashing you into the locker, now he drives by and hits you with a bat from the passenger window of his friend's car. You know what I mean? Or he knocks (laughs) he knocks your mailbox over. Right. But it's still like he can he can pinch his nose and say, you know, nah nah, And you can't get me. It's still like he feels a sense of power. It's especially easy for that adjustment, I think, in the heavyweight division where the options for how you can bully your big, slow, dumb opponents are many. But um, (laughs) that's how I always saw it. Right. It didn't make Overeem less confident. Than he was. Uh, in fact, I think it was sort of a necessary change because as he got older, the pattern of him getting of his super aggressive style gassing him clearly became worse and worse. So he needed to make an adjustment. But it was critical that that adjustment still allowed him to feel that he was like above his opponent, that he was in control. Right. Um, I guess one way to put this would be that uh, all styles are about how do you feel comfortable seizing and holding the initiative. And you have to allow your fighter to still do that with whatever changes you make. You don't want them to become, like Danny said, so passive and so thoughtful that they just end up hesitating. Uh, It has to feel natural. And and I think, yeah, I don't know, it sounds kind of foo-foo-y, I guess, but how that's framed, how that fits the fighter's personality, I think makes a big difference.
2: I think kind of in tandem with that, with the Overeem example, is you can also just sort of look at... It's it's interesting to see how a fighter's like professional experience, especially early, how that can ship, shape shape them and shift them long term. Because I think with Overeem, he quickly learned that like trying to be a more aggressive pressure fighter meant that he was just walking on to shots. Yeah. He was walking on to big shots from big punchers. Um and so like Yes, it took him a couple losses to get there, but he... I mean, of the times that Overeem's lost recently in the last couple years, I can't think of many that have been from him being overly aggressive and just trying to to swamp his opponent. Um, you know, it, it, he lost to, like, Curtis Blade. He just got exhausted. Like, he just couldn't keep up with Blades' pace. But he was... He has been doing... He does a better job of sort of yeah. recognizing the... um the problems that he was having early with just trying to walk people down and, and you know, strong them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he can look to that experience and be like, OK, this is there are elements of this that, I, that can work. But overall, like, I think the context needs shifting the the counter example. And I think we're going to kind of be bouncing through a lot of these is Shane Burgos for me right now,
0: mm-hmm.
2: because Shane Burgos is someone who I after his his first loss to Calvin cater you know in a terrific fight with you know some surprising adjustments for someone who was like four years into their career I was like wow like there's a lot of there's a lot of upside there even though he got finished I was like that's I was like man I, I wonder I wonder what he can build on here because he was he seemed to be building well against cater and just kind of got caught right um the problem then was that it just doesn't for Shane Burgos, it doesn't look like he's really learned a lot from his losses or the problem the, the issues, the times that he's had issues. It seems like his immediate response is just get back up and keep pushing harder. And when that's, when that's your takeaway, there's a far more likely chance that you just start running into the same thing over and over and over again. Um, when you can't, when you can't like learn from, learn from your mistakes and learn from the context, it can be harder to like identify what needs to be changed.
1: Don't you think that's most fighters though? Like that's most careers, right? Some people just sort of fall into their style. It's because it suits them. It's like a personality. Like most people don't change. And I truly believe that, you know, most people don't change much at least they, they, they they may paper over their their personality with different new ticks and traits and fascinations or whatever, but by the end of their lives, most people are pretty much the person they were when they were like 17. Um, and I think I yeah. truly believe that fighting style is so closely linked to personality that it's the same thing. I I knew a, uh, I knew a boxing trainer in Vegas, a very smart guy, um, who I used to shout out a lot more named Luis Monda, and um, he uh, he very unironically used clips from the movie, I guess it's just called Secretariat. It's about Secretariat, the horse. Um, he used clips from that movie to talk about training fighters. And like what you said before, Danny, like uh, you sort of uh, suggested that Overeem was like traumatized by what happened in the Travis Brown fight, for example, um, and successfully made adjustments as a result of that. That's how horses are. Like horses are very traumatizable. They're very skittish. Uh, if something bad happens to them in one spot, they're going to be nervous every time they walk past that spot. And that's what the movie is all about is like building the horse's confidence, like, uh, getting them back to like a healthy emotional state. And that's what allows the horse to run. I think fighters are exactly the same. Like I don't mean to disparage fighters, but, (laughs) and this doesn't have anything to do with Overeem's diet, but fighters are horses (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and, uh, and good trainers are, are aware uh, of that. And, and I think, I don't know, you have to deal with the sort of trauma uh, because otherwise your fighters are just going to be having the same losses, only worse and worse over the courses of their career.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think one interesting thing that goes from Shane Burgos specifically is that we've kind of been talking about fighters making adjustments in terms of like their overall career, which is like, you know, how a person matures if we're going to take that sort of analogy but i think the problem for emmett specifically was that he didn't make an adjustment based on his opponent right like if we're looking at a fighter who makes an adjustment based on the flaws that they see consistently in themselves that's Mm -hmm. one thing that we talked about with bektik and like lee and like but with burgos his style wasn't inherently flawed it just ran into a guy who it would require more risk taking than he probably should have Mm -hmm. and i think the problem there is that As you mentioned, a lot of fighters don't make one-fight adjustments. There's a reason why one of the performances I talk about a lot is Michael Johnson versus Edson Barboza, because that's like one of the few examples I can think of from a notably stupid fighter who actually did that, turning from an outfighter to a pressure fighter for a single fight because of his Mm -hmm. opponent. It just doesn't happen. So I think that's another thing where you can see a guy making broad strategic changes because of themselves more than you can see a guy doing that because of a specific opponent. And even that's mostly in rematches. In first fights, that just it, it just doesn't happen. hmm
1: I think that's a um, uh, th- there's a there are doers and there are thinkers in, in fighting. Uh, and I I don't know. I would guess based on that that Michael Johnson's just more of a doer. Like you equip him with the tools, you tell him what to do, and he goes out and does it. Certainly I think Justin, not a thinker. Well, I think Justin Gaethje is like that too. You know, like Trevor Whitman tells him what to do, and he just goes out there and does it. And you can see a difference between like Rose Namajunas. Being given the correct adjustments by Trevor Whitman and Justin Gaethje being given similar adjustments. One has a much easier job actually sticking to those than the other. And I think it's because Rose Namajunas um, starts to overthink. She's just a more thoughtful fighter in general. So she just has a harder time sticking to the game plan.
2: I think with with this kind of discussion, it's easy to look at the the standout good examples and and want to extrapolate from them because I think Gaethje is a, is a good example of that. Um, and you know Michael Johnson against Barboza, uh, Overeem's kind of whole shift. It's easy to look at the um like the good adjustments and want to key in on those, but I think it is it just is a far more likely thing. I can think of a lot more examples of fighters making the wrong adjustments or you know making no adjustments um because it's just kind of what we've come to expect i mean one of the mm-hmm. one of the most basic rules of following combat sports past a certain point is you just kind of look at someone and you say you are probably going to be who you are you know it's you shouldn't you can't expect you know, I like even even picking Gaethje over Ferguson. I was not expecting Gaethje to fight the way he did. No. Like I even I think we even discussed a little bit Spera and I talked about it. Like if he wants to play the same game he played against Cerrone, like I said, there's a good chance that he tries it for a round, feels like it's not working, and then just sort of walks Tony down with his old style. Like. You know, and if, if something's if something goes wrong for for Gaethje, there's a good chance he probably just kind of reverts back to what he did before. But obviously that didn't happen.
1: Instead, he went back to the corner. Trevor Whitman gave him two pieces of advice and then he did the same thing, but better for the rest of the fight.
2: Yeah, exactly. Um, so there's you know, that that's kind of a, a notable example on one side of the spectrum. But with. Making these adjustments, we we talk a lot about the fighters, but I do think it is also important to discuss how the coaches approach those as well, because, you know, with someone who was having a serious issue making any kind of changes uh, in like Anthony Pettis or, you know, as I say, Anthony Pettis kind of went about it the wrong way um, after he lost the title. He basically thought that his his problem was people can take me down. I need to get better at defending takedowns. And so Mm -hmm. he did. He got better at defending takedowns and he got no better at putting himself or getting himself off the fence or, you know, (laughs) comfortable having anything
1: resembling footwork.
2: Yeah, or having, yeah, like having a really consistent way to, you know, apply and measure offense, whatever, all these sorts of pieces. Those were all like crucial elements that needed attention, but he kind of fixed a tangential problem. Which again, it's not that's not that you shouldn't train your takedown defense, but he could also see Pettis having a lot of the same problems like over and over and over and over again. And just he's just sort of out there thinking like like what's going why is this not working? Um and I think past a certain point he probably just learned all that he could from Duke Rufus. Like I don't I don't know if there was much I mean I mean maybe not. Maybe that maybe Sergio Pettis was just Sergio was just taking all of Doug Rufus's time with footwork and there was no time left over for Anthony I don't really know um, but it did kind of feel like after a certain point his training under that one coach started to 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 stagnate a bit and it has been notable that there are people who've done kind of you know walkabouts if you will visiting places and, and getting different tutelage that that's kind of where That's where people start to realize, oh, there's a whole breadth of this stuff that I don't really know that well. Um, You know, maybe you don't find the right match right away, but. There's a there's a certain kind of there's a point at which you can tell that a, a fighter and a coach click and, you know, it's the fighter. Maybe that's the maybe that's the connection, like the fighter is the doer and the coach has to be the thinker and that if there's like, you know, if, if the coach just, you know, can't find the, the necessary adjustments that need to be met, then it's difficult for the fighter to employ them. But if the, you know,
1: I, I don't know. I think it's uh, there are some coaches that I think work better with more thoughtful fighters. You know, I think sure, for us, sure. the hobby style looks kind of clunky, uh, mm-hmm. with Kevin Lee, but it works really well for some very thoughtful fighters. Um, Oh, I'm forgetting his name. Matt Hume is DJ's trainer, right?
0: Yep.
1: Yeah. Okay. I was blanking on it for a minute. Matt Hume, obviously, like D- Demetrius Johnson, is a tremendously thoughtful fighter, like inhumanly active in his brain during during a a firefight. And um, yeah, I think Matt Hume's like encyclopedic style of fighter preparation obviously works very well for him. Almost perhaps uniquely well for him, because it's not like Matt Hume is producing a lot of other great fighters. Um, <laughs> so. I don't know. I I think there's room for both styles. I just think the difficulty of going and shopping around for a coach that's going to make broad uh, changes to your game is uh, to to quote something former fighter Cody Gibson said to me on Twitter just yesterday. um, Whatever your uh, percentage of how many fighters are dumb as shit is, double it. Uh, You know, I think a lot of fighters, like even the ones who are quote unquote thinkers, it's kind of a it's kind of a a crapshoot, which trainer they end up going to like uh, if kevin lee had gone to like Hafael cordero that probably would have suited him a lot better than frost's hobby uh but if uh i don't know if rory mcdonald went to Hafael cordero it probably it doesn't that doesn't sound like a good <laughs> fit you know it doesn't sound at right. all. so i don't know it's difficult I, I think there's room for both thoughtful and um dumb robotic fighters but uh not all coaches work equally well with both types. In fact, very few do. You know, I think Trevor Whitman, for example, has recently shown he can do work with both. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's two different mindsets.
0: Yeah, I think Team Alpha Male is a surprising example of that because if you look at Cody Garbrandt, mm-hmm. he's by definition a, a doer. He's mm-hmm. not a thinker at all. And Team Alpha Male kind of just made him double down on that over and over. I think because they're not a particularly thoughtful team either. They're very good at like finding athletes and giving them basic tools but past that he's not they're not a game planning camp and Cody Garbrandt when he went into the second TJ fight it uh it did not go well and it did not go well not just because he didn't have the tools for it, because he didn't have any way to apply it now you compare that to Josh Emmett who in the Shane Burgos (laughs) fight looked incredibly thoughtful when going into the third round he built on his successes and suddenly the simple tools the team alpha male gave him they were in a completely different context and I'm not sure team alpha male was the one that necessarily bred that into him but I think Uh, Josh Emmett is Inherently a little bit more thoughtful than Cody Garbrandt, so it worked out a bit more.
1: I think so. I, I am a little bit doubtful of whether alpha male bred that into him. I, I can't tell you how I know this, but um, uh, one suggested game plan from a, from a team alpha male coach for Josh Emmett when he was fighting Mirsad Bektich was to do what Darren Elkins did to beat Mirsad Bektic. Oh,
0: my God. I remember that Twitter conversation with
1: uh-huh. Yeah. They're like, we, we think he should just, it worked for Darren. Let's have him go out there and wrestle Bektic. And it's like, no, knock him out on the feet, which is what he ended up doing. But, yeah. So I'm, I'm not sure about Alpha Male. Yeah. But I, I think generally it's a, it's a doer's gym.
2: This is sort of why this is a difficult topic to breach, because every fighter, you know, like, as you said, fighters – a style and a, a personality are are quite closely linked and it's you definitely can see examples where things go awry like mm-hmm. you know i who the hell was the um oh god the team alpha male guy who kind of got concussed and then retired it was uh, cold Chris. Cold Chris. Cold cold. thank you yes i couldn't i couldn't pin the name um like they there were kind of stories about Holdsworth um being a really just natural talent at MMA. And but under the tutelage of like Dwayne Ludwig, it seemed like he was kind of being <laughs> he was being a bit overexerted in training. It sounded like it, it mm. didn't seem like it's and it it would it felt like it would be a perfect fit. Like there was a lot of evidence to support like this is a Bantamweight. In this division, you know, who's a natural grappler um, and Ludwig has done has made great strides with that kind of athletic archetype before. Like this seems like a seems like the right move, hmm. but that didn't at all work like it sounded like he kind of got ground down in in training and maybe it wasn't the you know, I'm not saying I'm not saying this is exactly what happened in his retirement, but it just seems like that was probably part of the problem he had in terms of actually training consistently um whereas you know like at tj and Dwayne, it just sort of fits like a glove like you have a more hard-nosed kind of aggressive fighter who wants to be initiating all the time uh against someone who's basically giving him all the tools to do that for every second of a fight Mm -hmm. so it's like i said i'm i don't really think that there's a like a correct formula for this um it does seem like a a lot of successful fighters tend to bring pieces from from everywhere like you know leon trained his striking in london and then it was aka that kind of taught him wrestling and grappling but leon is decidedly not a like aka fighter if you will um like adesanya is not he doesn't really resemble the kind of Protean kickboxer that like Volkanovsky and Riddell and Kaikara France do at city right. kickboxing. But he is, has certainly gained a lot of dimension in his clinch and in his takedown defense. And there have been some, you know, some tactical adjustments in his kickboxing that he's adapted for MMA. So maybe it, like, maybe it is, maybe it is more of a, like, it, it isn't just sort of like a one, one person to one coach type, synthesis although obviously it can be maybe it is for a, a broader sense like bringing pieces from from a lot of different places actually tends to amalgamate to the best kind of fighter
1: it's, just, it's com- people are complex man like having an ideal uh, gym environment or an ideal fighter coach relationship is a lot like having an ideal you know familial or romantic relationship like how many of them are there most of them are dysfunctional in one way or another So, yeah, I I just I don't know. I I think there's so many factors that go into that. How how about this? Can we think of an example of a fight um, that everyone has, like, talked about wanting to see a rematch or something and uh, and then suggest what the appropriate adjustments might be? Hopefully you guys can think of an example of something that I remember. But um, I don't know any anything spring to mind.
2: Serum, what do you got?
0: Uh, I'm not sure. I mean, there are a bunch of three-round fights that I think would change a lot in five-round rematches. But in general, I think those would kind of have the same plans until it, you know, the five-round start feeling themselves. And like Calvin Cater and Zabit, because you know Cater's just going to do the same thing. But mm-hmm. I think, uh, man, what's what's something really? F- I think for example, Usman and Covington is something that people have said that they want to see rematches of, and it's mm-hmm. something that I'm not particularly interested in personally. But if you're gonna look at the kind of adjustments that like for example Usman can do, it's like there's a lot of room for that, you know, with between the body punching that he did early and like kind of beating Covington up, there's a lot of latitude on the feet. And there's just the entire clinch dimension. That's another thing. But mm-hmm. in general, I'm not I'm not really sure. That's a tough one to think of.
1: But like all of those adjustments, you sort of you sort of presuppose they have to fit into the context of Usman pressuring uh oh,
0: Colby sure.
1: Covington, pushing him back. Like this is this is the main thing, is that the adjustments um even if they're even if as for Max Holloway, they're not going to be as sticky over the whole course of the fight, they have to fit into the way that person fights, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think one unique thing about Max is like Max folk, too, is that it, it's weird because it kind of didn't. Like if you look at Max in general, it was like he wasn't a natural counterpuncher, but he figured out like a counter uppercut in, mm-hmm. in the beginning of the fight. And he was dropping Volkanovski with like singular shots, which is like the opposite of what you expect from Max Holloway throughout the the entirety of his career. So mm-hmm. I think Max is just like a, a fucking prodigy. But I'm not in general. Uh, well, yeah, I, agree.
1: I would point out that for for example, perhaps they were largely aggressive counters. They weren't Max Holloway fighting off the back foot. They were fitting into a style in which Max Holloway goes forward and puts the pace on his opponent and draws things out of them. So I, I think you could argue that those counter punches are. They do slot into his game. It's a style of counter that makes sense for how he feels comfortable fighting.
0: Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I could, I think one of the the uppercut at the end of the second, I think, was him off the back foot. But that's in true. general, yeah. I mean, in general, like it's not something that he's totally bad at. So it's not like he just learned how to counter in the span of a single camp. Mm-hmm. But it's yeah, like for example, in the third fight for Max and Volk, that's something that I think people would want to see. There are a bunch of adjustments that both guys could make, like Max. He could keep doing what he was doing in the beginning, obviously, but there are stuff that he could do for Volkanovski's, like, leg kicking that he did better in the second fight, but he could still improve upon. There's Volkanovski maybe varying up his defensive responses off the jab a little bit to keep mm-hmm. himself away from the uppercut. Like it, That's like one of the few fights where you can look at the entirety of what both guys did and look at like little things they could do to deal with the other, and you can actually trust them to do those things in general like mm-hmm. after the second fight. So, yeah, I mean, that's kind of the only example I have.
1: Okay, here's one with lots of room for improvement. What about, like, Chris Cyborg and Amanda Nunes? Like, (laughs) right? Very basic Uh, level. (laughs) Very basic level, don't try to measure dicks with Amanda Nunes. Like, that is an adjustment you can make right off the bat. But there's so much room for growth in that fight that would still totally fit with Cyborg's style. Uh, Or we could just talk about, like, Whitaker-Otta and what adjustments Rob Whitaker should make. Uh, I think that's actually – that's an interesting one because – there were things I would have liked to see Whitaker do in this most recent fight that he didn't do, that that once again sort of um, um, broadened my understanding of how his style works, when it works best, and when it doesn't. Like, uh, I don't think it would uh, break Rob Whitaker's game to include a whole hell of a lot more body punching. Uh, I think that would be a yeah. fantastic thing to have in his arsenal when he wants to blitz forward against someone, whether it's Adesanya or Till, who constantly leans back to get away from wild head punches. Um, so I don't know, body punching, low kicks and, and body kicks be a very useful addition to the end of a combination that would prevent him from having to lunge so far to get at a range of your opponent's head. Uh, like that's a pretty small tactical thing to add to his game uh, That that I think he's, you know, he does punch the body. He's good at it. He just doesn't do it enough.
2: I have one for that fight as well. It may be a bit trickier, but it's one that I I know I harped on the last time we talked was limiting exchanges. Um, Yes. Like I think Rob is actually equipped to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, There are a lot of people, there are a lot of fighters in MMA who just aren't don't have the defensive or the offensive depth to you know know when to initiate, know when to limit, know when to end an exchange, Uh, and so they're they're just sort of caught out trying to overload or just they're reacting um rob is is defensively sound enough in the pocket and he you know he takes good angles on the exit that he can actually afford to you know if he were to just do like a simple like one two upstairs and then to the body with the right hand before angling out he's equipped to do that like there's nothing about his style that doesn't he can't have shorter snippier combinations before you know moving his head offline, pivoting out and then mm-hmm. you know resetting um what is what does make me think it might be a little bit tricky for him is that as i said against we said earlier against longer opponents he really has to commit when he enters um and i think that there may be something where he's like okay i'm, I'm on the outside i'm on the outside i'm on the outside i need to commit and enter i have to make it count like i gotta make this this entry, you know, really matter. I'm going to throw a lot into my left hook and then, you know, my follow-up right hand. You mm-hmm. know, if he wants to extend exchanges beyond that, he, he has done that before to varying degrees of success. Um, do, do you think, think that's... Do, do you guys think that's entirely intrinsic?
1: Like, the need to cover huge amounts of... Is it impossible to put Whitaker in there with a bunch of lanky training partners and really have him focus on, like, fainting his way into range and just... Because at a certain level, it just seems like he's uncomfortable with somebody who can touch him at long range. Uh, you know, like, he just hasn't seen enough of them or something. Uh, and that if he could calm down, he could... This, this is a, a, a adjustment a million different fighters can make. Get into range before you throw. You know, like, uh, yeah. and Whitaker is a great fainter, and he does this much better against shorter-armed opponents. I've always celebrated it uh, as, a, as like, a highlight of his game, is how well he faints and sets up his entries. Uh, but it just doesn't happen against these long range, you guys. So I don't know. That's, uh,
2: yeah, I, but it might be like, that may take an experience and like a, a real like training shift that may actually be one of those like kind of fight to fight adjustments. Um, mm-hmm. and I, but I, again, that's sort of what I mean is I don't know how much that's inherent to who like Robert Whitaker is and mm-hmm. how much he feels that he just has to, he has to make his entries like really, really count. Right. Or he's at least got um, to hand a of
1: few that, of those a few of those blitzes yeah, to yeah. feel comfortable. And 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 clearly when he doesn't land the first few, his, his tactical decision making seems to deteriorate a bit. He starts to get yeah. more and more determined
2: to land That's those rushes. Even. Yeah. Um whereas I think he actually as I said, he, he has the skill set to just to limit exchanges into pot shot on the outside and to make you know to just sort of, as Phil said, take smaller wins like mm-hmm. these things like they will accumulate rob mm-hmm. has a he's got a powerful jab when he really kind of commits to it he's as we said he's a natural counterpuncher when people try to enter in on him like there are there are avenues where he can do that and if if what whitaker is to beat adesanya someday that would be the way that i would recommend he go about it like i think that mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I think the worst thing that you can do and that he just kind of kept doing in the first fight was trying to trying to continue exchanges and when he didn't land his first strike he's used to kind of landing his second strike but against adesanya he wouldn't land his first strike and then he would have difficulty landing his second strike and then he feels like all right i need to land a third strike because you know my first two didn't land so there's there has to be some there's got to be some merit in this exchange like there has to be i gotta you know find something in here that's that i can hit him with and then he would get murked trying to figure out what the third strike was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think, of, like, as you said, body shots would, would help remedy that as well. It's just a bigger, mm-hmm. easier target for him to hit. Um, an easier one to hit as he's exiting. Um, so these things kind of... These things do layer. Uh, I don't think they all exist in isolation. Like, when I wrote the article I wrote, I used TJ Dillashaw and head movement as my primary example. But the truth of the matter is, when it comes to adjusting... <laughs> um typically you you want to be adjusting in layers like if you you know if rob were to do that if he was going to say all right i'm going to commit to the body like 60 percent more than i've used to and i'm going to make a concerted effort not to extend exchanges unless i you know this guy's really worn down and i like really have a read or whatever Mm -hmm. uh the opportunities to land would probably just skyrocket because he's he is defensively sound enough Mm -hmm. most of the time on entry and diversifying his threats in his plane of attack is never a bad thing like that is basically where your opportunities to land increase in in probability if you're forcing an opponent to now consider leg body and head strikes you've you know you've tripled your productivity effectively
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the problem that I generally have with expecting Whitaker to make that kind of adjustment, and it's not just that adjustment, it's what you mentioned, uh, Danny, in the last episode, is that Whitaker's style probably won't age well, and uh, it's something that I think Tumen mentioned, which is that older fighters tend not to like be those kind, tend to attack in smaller motions in terms of footwork, and not like the big explosions. Is I think, Whitaker is just he is who he is at heart, and the blitzes are just what he does. So, like, if I were to say, Robert Whitaker, box your way in. It would probably lead to the problem we talked about in the first example of adjustments, which is he thinks too much. He doesn't blitz in. He just doesn't do much at all, or he just does it wrong because he's been thinking too much about it. So I think it's like I'm not – I think there's a route for Robert Whitaker against Israel Adesanya. But at this point, I think it would take a lot of changing who he is as a fighter to, like, not blitz in as aggressively. And it's, it's tough to ask a fighter to do that as they age. Like, there are a lot of examples of fighters maturing. Like, we mentioned Anthony Pettis who didn't make the right adjustments in terms of like his core problems, but he did mature as a fighter and turning from like a kicker to like a counterpuncher at this point, which mm-hmm. is super weird, but it's something that he did.
1: It's the like Shogun that. Hua track.
0: Yeah, exactly. That's, that's actually a great comparison. <laughs> it's he started out as a kicker who was better at grappling and now he's just a counter puncher. But it's, I think there are examples of fighters making those kinds of adjustments it's just that, again, it's hard to expect fighters to do that for specific opponents as much as it is to expect them to do it for flaws they see with themselves. So I don't expect fighters to like – even Robert Whitaker, who I consider very highly in terms of like fight IQ in general, mm-hmm. it's hard to expect them to make those kinds of adjustments for specific opponents.
1: Yeah, he is a good adjuster, but he is likely still to be making the kind of adjustments that Robert Whitaker makes. You know, that there yeah. are certain patterns that are that are just like endemic to who he is. I, I think, um, yeah, along those lines, like, uh, I don't know what happened to that front kick that works so well against Joel Romero to keep uh, Whitaker in a pressuring position to keep his opponent pushing back. That would be a great move. I think he, the the right adjustments would be just like tacking on a few other ideas. That's essentially what Max Holloway did against Volkanovsky, like. Uh, like I said, they, they sort of they sort of rusted away after a couple rounds uh, after Volkanovsky started to adjust. It turns out that Volkanovsky fighting his usual way just had a deeper bag of tricks than the new Max Holloway. But um, that's essentially all Max did for that fight It's just like add on a couple new moves. Um, he was still basically Max Holloway, but he just added on a couple specific answers to the things you know the advantage of having lost the first fight he added on specific answers to what gave him trouble the first time around um i do think all of that's possible but what you said to is basically the the reason i've downgraded my expectations for any whitaker adesanya rematch from oh whitaker could win that to whitaker could lose but look a lot better doing it he (laughs) couldn't you know what i mean he could come in with better tools better suited to the situation but it it now feels very concretely like The the styles are tied to their personalities, and Robert Whitaker is going to have a hard time ever beating Israel Adesanya.
2: You know, we invited you onto the show to talk about adjustments, Connor, but I almost feel like a better subtitle is going to be like fighter maturation, Mm. because that sort of seems like where a lot of this conversation is drifting back to is like, you know, how much can you how much faith can you put in a themselves to to find the, the the discipline and their you know the tact to not just adjust but to continue adjusting like i think i i give max a lot of credit for the adjustments he made versus volkanovsky but he did adjust whereas volkanovsky i think continued adjusting was kind of the difference
1: yeah max um, came in as, with some some new weapons but volkanovsky adjusted on the fly to the new things Mm -hmm. that Max brought, and those stuck to the end of the fight. Like, however you feel about the score, it definitely felt to me that Volkanovski had figured the new Max out once again, by the end of the fight. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, by the fifth round. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's like, in some ways, that's kind of a a bit of an, like, even a more interesting topic. It's just like, you know, in, in sort of contextualizing this whole discussion, is like we can we are in a very comfortable position and I always try to remind myself this when I, whenever I'm, if I'm being critical of a fighter, I'm writing something, I have to kind of take a step back and just sort of examine where I am and what I am, what I am observing from where I'm sitting. Mm -hmm. It is very easy for us to take a look at fighters and identify things that could, they could do with improving, um, you know, say like hitting the body more, which I feel like we say every single episode serum. Um you know <laughs> I, I
1: I do some scouting reports for a couple uh, a couple of fighters and coaches and um uh I always make it sound like it's like a specific opening for this particular opponent
2: but basically everyone <laughs> says throw jabs and hit them in the body <laughs> hit
0: them
2: in the body yeah yes. really. um you know we can we can identify things that we see but it's also you also kinda of have to put yourself in the shoes of a fighter and think to yourself, like what what could be preventing them from doing this? You know, it could be that Rob you know, maybe Rob knocked Till down and he just kinda of felt like this guy is just he is like five clean punches away from being hurt again or being finished, like or sure. whatever. Um, you know, maybe with uh the Holloway Volk Rematch. I definitely
1: got that vibe there. That Max was like, "Oh my god, it's working." He got comfortable again, and then he just became classic Max Holloway. Yeah, vibe.
2: and then you know, in the like the fifth round, Volk was like, "I think I, I think I got a handle on you now." Like, mm-hmm. and I'm the likelihood of me getting dropped again is is fairly low. Like, if you know that that could be something too, or maybe it's a training thing. Maybe you know, maybe in training they try something out, and they get hurt for it, or they get they get punched in the face for it, and then it's immediately. They're immediately disincentivized from trying it again. Um, it's the horse thing. Yeah, it is. Like it is absolutely the horse thing. It's a good, it's a great example. I mean, although... uh huh. Oh, go ahead.
1: Well, I was just gonna say I, I talk about this all the time. With like uh, the example that always jumps to mind uh, is uh, uh, <laughs> clearly it jumps to mind is Talus Latus. Uh, yeah. Who anytime anybody Silver. hits him with a jab, he has Anderson Silva flashbacks. He starts to have PTSD. It's a real thing. <laughs> like, yeah, it's fun to laugh at, but like there genuinely is PTSD associated with fighting. Getting hit by another person who wants to kill you is traumatic. Uh, and yeah, those, those leave like lingering impressions. I don't know. How did, how did Jose Aldo's body language look when he realized that the Max Holloway rematch was unfolding exactly the same way as the first one?
2: Yeah. Uh, and I was, yeah, I actually wasn't even. I wasn't even thinking of that specifically. I was thinking of just even in a tactical sense. Like Aldo is someone who will like. This is kind of like one of the 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 few technical criticisms I actually have with him is that he is a fighter who, well, at least you know during his title reign, um, he was someone who like if he felt that like a a tool was there, he would use it. But if yeah. you know, if someone was could disincentivize him from using his tool he would shelf the tool he wouldn't like figure out how to make it work yes yeah right and so when when max kind of flurried at him off a leg kick his takeaway was oh he's ready for the leg kicks got to do something else like that that's out can't can't use that um whereas you know you look at a fighter another adjuster like volkanovsky and volkanovsky was like in the first fight against max like he would get jabbed and you know as the fight progressed Max figured out more ways to kind of counter Volkanovsky's leg kicks but it didn't deter him from landing and he's like all right I kind of need to figure out something else to to get in there I need to find different entries to actually land this tool I'm not I'm not getting rid of it but I'm yeah I'm adapting with it you just need to figure and, out how to hide it you know that's all yeah right um and I guess that's kind of where that's where that's why technical depth means anything mm-hmm. um but it is it is sort of telling, like how much you can learn about a fighter just by how they, you know, adjust big or small, how they adapt and mature over time. Um, I think that that horse analogy is a really good one, because I'm I'm now like <laughs> I'm now wondering, I've had like half a dozen fighters running through my mind. I'm like, how many of them would react this way? If they were put, you know, how, fuck knows, how does Cody react? Like, if if he makes it to his idle shot and Peter Jan starts, like, you know, angling off to his right to set, you mm-hmm. know, in southpaw and starts trying to set up a right hook, like... Oh, Cody Garper is Cody, still in there. <laughs> he's, yeah, he's got to be in there,
1: right? <laughs> the, the, the horse lives on inside, no doubt.
2: Yeah, so it's just kind of, you know, maybe parting thoughts a bit, but I, that does kind of leave me... You know, leave me thinking about, you know, what kinds of fighters and what fighters, on the other hand, actually can overcome it. You know, like what kind of are there fighters who can have bad experiences and then not only learn from them, adjust from them, but then if they're put in a similar position, can they recognize that and kind of reset?
1: I'm going to give you two very distant examples. Uh, George St. Pierre, I think a very intellectual fighter. One of the rare, like, all-terrain fighters, someone whose style was capable of succeeding if he's moving forward, moving backward, could work at a high pace or a low pace against a wide variety of opponents, Uh, I think. And and a guy who we know, too, is, like, even more than a lot of fighters, like, sort of anxious and uh, overthinks things, you know, and and has his sort of famously at this point has his, like, uh, uh, paranoid conspiratorial thinking. Um, so yeah, like that's an example. Another one, though, Derek Lewis. One day, Derek Lewis figured out that if he just stopped freaking out on the ground, he would start to beat people when they got tired from grappling with him. <laughs> and that was literally him like overcoming the anxiety he had about being put in a comfortable position, overcoming that dramatic experience of having been beaten there and exhausted there before. Um, Now, it's a it's a really stupid heavyweight style adjustment, but uh, it really it's really worked. It was like I see it as the turning point of his entire career. So it's possible, but it's tough. You know, like I said, most people really, really struggle to change.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's why that's something that I say when, like, you know, we start to rag on like Calvin Cater and stuff is an adjustment in MMA. If you see someone adjust, it's a discreetly good thing, more than not adjusting is a bad thing. Yeah, it's,
1: fighting is so, stressful, man. How, how good are any of us at adjusting and, like, thoughtfully changing our approach when we're extremely stressed out?
0: Yeah, like, if you look at a specifically adjustable fighter, it's like you can't look at the entire field and be like, why aren't they like this? Just because it's genuinely <laughs> abnormal. Yeah. So, like you know, you look at, like, Edward Vartanian or something, it's like, hey, everyone should be like Edward Vartanian. No, no one's like Edward Vartanian. That's why he's Vartanian. So... If you look at a fighter who just like, you know, he gets hit with the same things over and over. It's just sometimes fighters just are who they are and who they are aren't very smart.
1: You are either the kind of person who adjusts, right? Like that's just a, a, you're a person who stays very thoughtful and very calm under pressure. And I think sometimes that's just tied to experience. Um, you know, like I think of James Tony, That guy could always make adjustments because his training regimen was just going into the gym and letting – like a, a new fresh guy each round go in there and try to take his hat off. Uh, he cultivated a an eerie sense of calm uh, in the midst of a crazy brawl, and that made him – it allowed him to think about the big big picture of his fights while he was in the middle of them. Um, so either you're a guy who adjusts and that gets revealed, or you're like pretending. Um, you know, you're you're pretending. You're tacking some new things on, and then once those are answered, once those are taken away – you're just the same guy again.
2: You mean like Frankie Edgar's spin kicks?
1: <laughs> what a beautiful adjustment. Uh, you know, it's a great example of a, of, a, of a tactical addition that did not solve. We talked about uh, Anthony Pettis' uh, new wrestling defense. But my favorite example has always been Junior Dos Santos against Cain Velasquez, adding like an up elbow as he turned his back and ran along the fence. Like this was his new move that was going to prevent Cain Velasquez from exploiting that habit. Didn't fix the habit, but, you know, t- to be fair, like, obviously, look at Junior. It's hard. Like, he's just never been able to get over being Junior Dos Santos. So, I don't know. Yeah.
2: Well, I like the elbows, Connor.
1: <laughs> <laughs> they were great. Yeah, I like them, yeah. too. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it really seemed to put Kane off his game plan. I think it was a win. <laughs> um. I think that is probably a good note to end on. Like I said, with all these discussions, they always kind of end up morphing into something else. So maybe, like, adjustment and maturation is what we should call this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but thank you so much for coming on our show, Connor. Uh, it was awesome to have you back. Um, you're welcome on anytime. Uh, and to those... Let's, let's let's start engaging the audience a little bit, Sure. And let's say, like, leave a comment down below. <laughs> No. <laughs> That's you guys yeah, have to, to adopt
0: the- <laughs> you guys- Smash that motherfucking like and subscribe <laughs> You yeah. guys have to
1: adopt the heavy hands ethos, which is fuck the fans. I'm so sorry, listeners. You, <laughs> wow. <laughs> you, you are nothing. You are lucky to be receiving this analysis from me and Danny, and yes, even Shuram. You're you're blessed. Yeah. Uh, to receive okay, these. We'll,
2: we'll take that <laughs> as <a> review, Connor. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but seriously, thank you again for coming on. Uh, thank you awesome. so much for
1: having me. Yeah, and thank you for 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 having me and
2: even tolerating me for like an hour. Do you have anything coming out this week? Do you have any articles in the on the back burner?
1: Hell no. I mean, I have a lot of, I always have a lot of, <laughs> I always have a lot of articles on the back burner, um, but, uh, I got heavy hands. So this week, Phil and I are obviously going to be talking about, uh, Robert Whittaker, Darren Till. We're going to have to, uh, give some credit to Darren Till. We're going to have to, I don't know, have very mixed, confusing emotions about Robert Whittaker. That should be fun. And, uh, what's next week's 10? card again?
0: Ah, oh, Brunson Shabasian. Oh yeah, we're gonna talk about that too. <laughs> Are you? But yeah. I thought would put you off. We'll, well, we might. I mean, we'll, we'll try. At least it isn't home Aldana.
2: Yeah, I was gonna say the same thing. Uh, a little <laughs> yeah. better. It's better. Uh, Serum, do you have anything coming out this week?
0: Uh, I don't think so. Like, I, I was, uh, I was doing articles like a bunch during June, and now I've just like not done a ton this time. So out. it's
1: yeah, yeah. Hey, I like you know it's what, just because uh... June
0: was super rich.
1: Final shout, just because you mentioned him, Derek Brunson. That's a guy who's made some stylistic adjustments. Several Hell
2: times, yeah. Right? Uh, it only yeah. took him like six knockout losses, but he got there. <laughs> he went
1: from being a totally different fighter to being the Derek Brunson we know and love. And now he's another, even more totally different kind of fighter, which is kind of impressive.
0: I mean, it's kind of funny because I think like stupid running forward with his left hand Brunson might actually have more success against like elite fighters. Yeah yeah it's like at least you're you're giving yourself like a 15% chance of a critical hit as opposed to like <laughs> shitty tactical <laughs> outside fighting.
2: Maybe Derek Brunson really is like a light heavyweight at heart. Um, uh, I never thought all. about that, but yeah, right <laughs> um, I I have two articles that I think I'm kind of working on. I don't know if they'll be out this week, but one of them is a new kind of series I want to dabble into which is like a bit of a hypothetical analysis so i'd be like taking you know what would have happened if this fighter from 2015 instead of doing whatever it is they did went on to fight this fighter from the same period it's not exactly like a prime versus prime um but like the one i'm working with right now is like what would have happened if gsp had gone straight from the hendrix fight to fighting robbie lawler Mm. um around like 20 Late 2013, early 2014. Like, what would that what would that look like? So I'll see how that goes. And then the other one is uh, I'm tr- gonna try to do a TJ Dillashaw versus Cody Garbrandt tetherball analysis, uh, where I'm gonna look <laughs> at their. <laughs> I have legit
1: used that as a piece of fight analysis.
2: It's useful. It's it is.
0: Like Actually, it's totally... on the Cody Garbrandt pod. It
1: it is totally the same dynamic you had in their
0: it fights. Is, yeah,
1: 100.
0: Perfect. Uh, yep.
2: And so I kind of want to and I'll, I'll mix in some actual because I, I always enjoy writing about TJ. Uh, he's a really fun fighter to to break down. So I'll work in some some technical analysis here and there. But I was actually I was thinking about that the other day. and I'm like, oh, man, that actually might be a really fun article. Like that could, (laughs) I could probably mine a lot out of that. I just want to Um, see
1: more fighters taking each other on in like one V one basketball, like tennis singles. I just want to see how that stylistic dynamic (laughs) translates to other sports. I think it would probably correlate better than, than we might expect.
2: I bet you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Personality Uh,
0: thing. Absolutely. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And, and the tetherball game was like the, just the, perfect example like it just encapsulated both men Mm to such a flawless degree um which is part i guess part of the reason i want to write about it so i got i guess i got those coming out um be sure to check out stay tuned on on bloody elbow see we're even plugging your site now connor uh and heavy hands go join their patron uh as far as the fight site continue checking our stuff and i and all the other talented writers at the fight site have stuff coming out pretty consistently um i think in what is it next it's not next week is two isn't it's not next week is cormier stipe three right it's the week after we I got think one more it's week.
0: like three weeks it's like we've got uh, three weeks? brunson yeah i've got like brunson shabazian now and then lewis olenic which is a dazzling main event and oh. then um yeah and then DC, dc stipe
1: okay we don't have another weekend off till october that's all i know
0: and i consider both of those weekends what like, <laughs> oh God. okay um
2: well i Wise, guess we'll man. see yeah i guess we'll find out um but again stay tuned to the fight site be sure to check out hyperfly you can go to the link at the very bottom of the fight site's main page click it and you will get a discount um thank you guys so much for supporting us uh thank you again connor for coming on the show and please stay safe